Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormady, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 58 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I am pleased to welcome Earl Swift, a former reporter for the Virginian Pilot, who is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Chesapeake Requiem, which was named to 10 best of the year lists. Swift has been a residential fellow at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities at the University of Virginia since 2012. But today, we'll primarily be discussing his new book, Across the Airless Wilds, The Lunar Rover and the Triumph of the Final Moon Landings, just out from William Morrow. Swift joins us from Charlottesville, Virginia. Earl, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Uh, Thank you, Bruce, for having me. First off, how would you define these Apollo lunar roving vehicles? Uh, The lunar rover was a, uh, a tiny, extremely lightweight, folding aluminum go-kart electrical uh, electrically powered four by four uh, designed to carry two astronauts over uh, a pretty rough terrain it was powered by tiny electric motors that gave it less motive brawn than a weed whacker but (laughs) but also had transmissions that gave it a lot of torque and so it could it wasn't fast you know thing moved pretty glacially A, a reasonably fit human could outrun it on flat ground but it um it could carry a really heavy load up uh, some pretty significant slopes. And so it was well-suited to, uh, to the late Apollo missions, in which you know, one, of the, one of the prime directives was to, uh, to cover uh, wider ground than the early missions had. And in fact, uh, in your book, you write that these later Apollo missions made the greatest strides when, quote, the world was no longer hanging on every word the moonwalkers spoke or following every step they took on missions that are recalled dimly today. Why do you think that these last three missions were kind of underappreciated by the global public? Well, it wasn't, you know, really, I think the, the latter five missions were underappreciated. Uh, oh. Really, you know, the, the, all of them dimmed in the shadow cast by Apollo 11, which... You know, when you think about it, was was probably the only time, first and last, that virtually the entire world's population experienced something as one. You know, we were all witnesses in the moment to this incredible uh, thing unfolding before our eyes on live TV. On Apollo 12, you saw that uh, you saw the, a much more jaded reaction to what was going on. And of course, Apollo 13 did reinvigorate interest for all the wrong reasons. And then with the 14, uh, you know, by, by the time 14 came along, the moon landings were coming to be viewed as commonplace, which is a bit mind-boggling. With 15, now we're talking a full two years after the initial landing, you know, if, if it had not been for the fact that those missions carried a rover, they, I think they would have been ignored altogether by the general public. They, the fact that we had teams of astronauts up on the moon was no longer something that grabbed people by the throat. Now, now part of it is because I think in those early missions, expectations were set that, that dis- discouraged uh, people from getting really excited about it. But, you know, they, um, 
they used a stationary movie camera or uh, TV camera that was on a tripod outside of the, the lunar module. They didn't move it much. They were on foot. They bounced around. You, you'll recall the TV transmissions of kind of indistinct blobs bouncing around the lunar surface. And, they, you know, they weren't doing anything particularly stirring when they were on camera. You know, it just uh, it all added up. Lousy TV, um, you know, the fact that the big moment of excitement was passed added up to, uh, to kind of a, a jaded popular reaction to, uh, to the whole program. I guess we can't overlook the fact, too, that we were in the middle of a war that was costing a lot of money and lives. Uh, we had tremendous domestic challenges at home. There were some real-world problems that, uh, that needed, needed fixing, and I think there was a growing unease among many people that we were spending uh, you know, $450 million per, per moon launch. Uh, it was a lot of money. So, but then you argue that these moon buggies, as the press uh, dubbed them, enable Apollo 15, 16, and 17, the astronauts, to access the most scientifically significant geological sites in the least amount of time. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, the contrast between the first three and the latter three was so dramatic that it's almost as if the, they were parts of a diff, you know, different programs. Um, the first three, uh, the astronauts were uh, seriously limited in their ability to move around. The terrain in which they landed, uh, at least for the first two missions, were, were a featureless, flat lunar desert. Not a very compelling setting for, for science or for anything else, for that matter. You know, the, the exertion required to move around in a spacesuit when you're on foot is it's, it's substantial. I mean, you're in a, a suit that's pumped up to the stiffness of an all-season radial. And just moving your arm or closing your fist requires real muscle. It, it requires real effort. So what we remember is seeing the astronauts bunny hop around and, and seemingly having a lot of fun was actually them doing a lot of work. And all that work translated into higher metabolic rates, which translated into their consuming the air and cooling water in their backpacks at such a rate that they could not spend much time outside. They, you know, they had real limits due to their life support on how much they could, they could do. Then with the, the last three missions, you have a rover. And the rover not only gives them range, you know, they can hop in and drive someplace, but it also conserves their, their life support because it doesn't require nearly as much energy to, to ride as it does to, to walk or hop. And it builds a cooldown and several cooldowns into each of their sorties. So they'll, they'll leave the lunar module, drive out to a science stop, get out, do some work, then get back into the rover, cool down while they're driving to the next science stop and so on. So it benefited them in, in a couple of different ways, not only in the mileage they were able to cover, but the time in, they had in which to, to conduct the science. And consequently, they were able to do so much more of it. And the, uh, the EVAs for the Apollo 11 and 12 were much shorter than the later missions. In terms of time and in terms of distance, that's true. I mean, Apollo 11, they, there were one EVA that they were outside the lunar module for two and a half hours or so. Their wanderings would fit into a football field with a lot of yardage to spare. The farthest either Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin 
strayed from the learner module was 65 yards that came right at the end of the, their EVA when, when um, Armstrong jogged out to the edge of a, a crater to get some last-second pictures and, and samples. You contrast that with 17, where the astronauts conducted three EVAs that covered more than 22 miles of ground in, in their rover. Uh, at one point, they were 4.72 miles from the lunar module, which is the farthest any, any party ever strayed from them, from base. They collected hundreds of pounds of samples. They, uh, it's, uh, in the whole time, they beamed pictures of what they were doing back to Earth on TV. And, and a much improved version of TV from what Eleven had had been able to transmit. So it's a, it's a night and day proposition between the two. And uh, you write that uh, Apollo 11's brief lunar visit offered a strong argument for the LRV project, the lunar rover project. And just as you mentioned, it was because primarily uh, moving in a spacesuit proved so tiring and clumsy. You write that the outer garment was actually 21 layers thick and resisted bending as a matter of course, but when pressurized, as you just said, it, it blew up into a stiff balloon that required real muscle to flex. So I guess this was a major driver. These, the fact that these spacesuits were so onerous to move around in was a major driver for the, for the rover. Absolutely. I mean, the, the fact that uh, you needed those spacesuits and they had to be uh, with the, the materials available at the time, they had to be built the way they were pretty much there there were not a lot of alternatives but they they did present some some real issues not only in in their flexibility and the muscle required to bend them which was substantial but just in you know from within your helmet you couldn't see your your own feet uh and you know (laughs) the the suit weighed more than the astronaut wearing it which is something we tend to forget uh an astronaut fully suited up in the early missions weighed 370 pounds which is considering that, you know, the astronauts were not big guys. Um, you know, they weighed 160, 165. We're talking a very heavy suit. The bulk of that weight in the backpack, which, of course, contained machinery, communications gear, as well as air bottles and, and water reservoirs and such. You layer on top of all of that the weirdness of being in one-sixth gravity and having to get used to just moving around, something you can never really adequately trained for on Earth. So it was a, it was a, it was a combination of, of weirdness and difficulty, I think, that limited their, their movements. So you write that the, uh, the lunar rover was a feat of, quote, less is more engineering, in which, quote, its builders distilled everything essential to an earthbound off-roader to its indivisible minimum, its smallest and lightest and most fundamental iteration then whittled even further. It's true. I mean, all you have to do is look at the thing. It's, it's a uh, gossamer version of, uh, of what we would consider a car. It is stripped down to the, the bare essence. And, and also, it's stripped down in such a way, uh, you know, weight was probably the, the most difficult factor in building the thing because uh, the lunar, lunar module could not take a lot of cargo uh, from a weight standpoint. There was a, uh, uh, a thumbnail math done at, at, in Houston that suggested that for every 10 pounds of additional cargo the, the LM carried, you gave up a second of hovering time. And Apollo 11 had demonstrated not only the desirability of having a rover, but 
the danger of, of losing any hover time. It, um, you know, Neil Armstrong did a lot of hovering as he brought the, the lunar module in for a landing. And when it finally touched down, there were only seconds of fuel left to spare. So NASA was very conscious throughout the, the rover's development that it had to be kept super light. And consequently, uh, this was a machine that could only be used in one-sixth gravity. It was far too light and wispy to be used on Earth. Uh, its floorboards, it was a sheet of, of a, a ribbed sheet of aluminum, one-fiftieth of an inch thick, which is Good about gosh. as thick as the thinnest of wood veneers on a cheap piece of furniture. Mm. Um, the, uh, the wheels, you know, its signature feature, wheels of zinc-coated stainless steel piano wire woven into a tight mesh, they would squash flat on Earth. Not only with astronauts sitting in the, in the rover, but just under the force of gravity, the weight of the machine would squash the tires flat. So this was something that could only be used on the moon, which complicated both its design, because it couldn't be tested on Earth in any sort of realistic way. But, you know, I mean, a lot of this was extrapolation. A lot of this was, was um, educated guesswork as to, as to how, how far they could go in lightening it before they compromised its, its durability and strength in a lunar environment. And it also, as I mentioned in Forbes, it also had to encounter the kind of terrain that would immediately destroy even the best Earth-based off-road vehicles and weather temperatures that would fluctuate between 250 degrees Fahrenheit above and below zero. And so that's in the sun and shade. So when most people hear those kinds of numbers, that really means nothing. But these vehicles had to be, they, they were light, but they had to be extremely tough. Well, those numbers mean something to me. I tell you, if, I, if someone tells me you're going to step into 250 degrees Fahrenheit, I'm going to say no, thank you. It's hard to imagine we, when we say 250 degrees. We can we understand now with the heat wave what 105 is, you know, with humidity. But double that. I mean, that's difficult to imagine. Oh yeah, oh yeah. We're talking about cooking a brisket here. I mean, you know, it's a it's a significant amount of heat. It, it would kill you. And heat was was only one factor. I mean, the environment also featured a continuous bombardment of cosmic radiation and micrometeorites the size of a grain of sand, but moving you know, with the speed of bullets, which could do presumably some damage. There was the nature of the lunar surface itself. This is a really, really fine powdery dust that makes up the first few inches of the lunar surface, the topmost few inches. And that dust, despite its fineness, and it's so fine that if you get it on your sleeve and go to brush it off, it'll smear. But despite that fineness, it's also very gritty. So if it insinuates its way into machinery or into the rings with which an astronaut's suit, uh, you know, his helmet connects to his suit, it can foul up the works pretty easily. You're talking about a machine that not only has to be hardy to deal with, with the environment, but also has to be sealed pretty much against uh, against this dust and against the airless hard vacuum in which it operated, which regular oils and regular lubricants would evaporate instantly. You know, this this had to be a tough little thing, despite its wispy construction. And you write that with seats that looked like lawn chairs. <laughs> and I thought, that that's exactly it. I mean, you look at this and you think, my gosh, it's a beach chair. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's kind of it's almost humorous to, when you first see it. Uh, and yeah. you write that the moon buggy lacked a body, roof, steering wheel, or much of anything else besides wheels that typically define a car. You write that a solid state 
drive control system would uh, would convert movements of the joystick to the motors and steering. So how did that joystick and steering actually work? Well, the joystick was a uh, was especially designed in recognition of how difficult it was to close an astronaut's glove around what we think of as a joystick. Uh, when initially when the, the the rover was in development, it had just a straight up and down joystick, and the astronauts, after practicing with the thing, all complained that it wore them out after just a minute or two. Mm. It became actually painful to use because they were constantly having to squeeze against that pressure in their suits. So they developed a, a T-shaped hand controller that a, an astronaut just could rest his palm on and just by moving uh, with slight movements of his wrist could get to go you know, in the direction he wanted it to. And the hand controller worked a lot like a, like an airplane's yoke. It, it, you push it forward, the rubber went forward. You, you lean it to the right or left, the rubber turned in those directions. You pull it back, you braked. You pull it all the way back, you'd engage the parking brake. You flip a switch on the base of the, of the stick and then pull back and the rover would go into reverse. And it was, you know, had steering both fore and aft, all wheel steering, so it could turn in its own length. You know, Charlie Duke will tell you that uh, that might have been a little bit too maneuverable, a little bit you know, too efficient a steering system because it, it, it was very twitchy. And um, uh, it would turn fast, and sometimes the astronauts needed it to, but it did not track in a straight line particularly well. And Charlie Duke was on Apollo 16. 16, that's right. He, yeah. was, he was a lunar module pilot on a, Apollo 16 and, uh, with John Young, who was the commander. You actually saw a, a model of one of the rovers uh, here in a museum, I believe, and you, were, you write that you were kind of shocked at how small it looked. What you see at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in, in Huntsville, and there's also one at the uh, National Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian, these are test rovers. They're part of the testing Boeing and GM had to go through to get certification to put these, you know, the, the final three rovers on the rockets. So they were built exactly like the rovers that actually went. The first thing that strikes you, I think, is just how little of it there is. I mean, this is a vehicle that uh, you put it alongside a modern Mazda Miata, which is one of the smallest cars on the road today. And the Miata outstretches it by two and a half feet. Good God. It's a small car. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's, so the rover is, it's tiny. Now, of course, one of the reasons is that it's power plant up front. It's arranged like a, you know, a regular, a standard car. You know, thank GM for that. It's got its power plant up front. The driver and his passenger sit amidships. And then you've got a trunk in the back. And one of the reasons that it's, it, it can be so small is that the power plant takes up very little room. We're talking two batteries, two batteries uh, and a few boxes of electronics, you know, the drive control stuff. Uh, in back, you've got a pallet, what they call the pallet. It's basically a, a tailgate that opens that, that holds uh, the astronaut's tools. And there's an area back there uh, where you can store uh, collected samples of rocks. There is no room on the thing Otherwise, except for the seats for the astronauts. I mean, uh, they've got storage underneath their seats. There's not a lot of it. It's teeny tiny. It sits high off the ground. It had to have four, 14 inches of ground clearance, mm -hmm. um, fully loaded. The impression is of a kind of a, a crouching insect almost. It, it's got this very kind of vertical stance to it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's bristling with antennas. It's got that big inverted umbrella 
high gain antenna that was used for TV. And uh, it's covered with uh, gold covered foil on its, on its TV camera. I mean, it looks all business. The impression is less of tininess than it is there is not one wasted piece of metal on this thing. Everything is load bearing. And so it ran on electric batteries. Batteries powered electric motors in each wheel hub. And the electric motors were housed uh, in a sealed unit with something called the harmonic drive, which was a tiny transmission that would fit into a, a soup can. And it consisted of three parts, only two of which moved. It's elegant and it's crazy and it works. Uh, it had a surprising amount of torque given, you know, that it had the brawn of a, you know, a, a small shop vac. It could, it could handle some very rough terrain and it had a good suspension, a suspension at 10 inches of travel. Uh, it was a uh, double wishbone sort of thing that uh, kind of like you'd see on an indie race car. And um, it worked really, really well. So you write that Werner von Braun, who helped orchestrate the U.S. Uh, space program, arranged for a series of articles that appeared in Collier's magazine in the early 1950s. And then one of these articles directly dealt with the idea of using some sort of roving lunar mobile vehicle that could transport astronauts from one point on the lunar surface to another. Were you surprised at how far back designs for a lunar rover to be used by astronauts or moonwalkers actually stretched? Yes and no. I mean, uh, I, I had read, read enough science fiction over my life. You know, you read Edgar Rice Burroughs' Mars series, and, and you know that you know, people were thinking about things like this back in the 30s. Um, and the earliest uh, iteration that I know of of a rover in science fiction dates to 1901, so before the Wright brothers even flew. Von Braun wrote his pieces for Collier's in 1952, and that is, it may not be the, the first nonfiction futuristic piece of writing that makes the case for, the, for lunar mobility, but it's the earliest I know of, and that does it in any kind of detail anyway. He describes how he envisions a mission to the moon going in just within 25 years. And uh, it's very different in many respects from the way the Apollo program actually spun out. But one piece of the vision he shares is uh, for what he calls moon cars, which are big caterpillar tractor tank-like vehicles with pressurized cabins. Presumably the astronauts in these pressurized cabins would be able to take off their suits and travel in and kind of shirt-sleeved comfort while they were traversing the lunar surface. And he uh, describes these beasts, which would be huge and would need their own rocket in, in order to reach the lunar surface. He describes these things going on a 250-mile a odyssey, one way, 500 miles total, with people aboard on the very first trip to the moon. That, that vision of his is removed from what we now know to be the reality of the Apollo program, as it seems, would stick around for a long time and would inform the early work that NASA and the Marshall Space Flight Center did in rover development well into the mid-60s. But through the years after Von Braun's Collier articles, there were several competing ideas about how to design a lunar car contraption for local transport once on the lunar surface. So one actually involved a worm-like contraption, a lunar leaper, a lunar flyer, and even a lunar motorcycle. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and but you know, interestingly enough, I think it was was it Apollo fourteen. Edgar Mitchell 
recalls he was pulling some sort of rickshaw like thing that that held tools it's called the the modular equipment transporter or met okay. and uh he and he and uh alan shepherd took turns pulling this thing it was it was a stopgap between having to lug other tools and samples by hand and having a rover to carry it all in right um you know for 14 they figured okay we'll we'll give them this this hand cart and see how they do and the answer was well, okay, it, you know, it wasn't great, but you know, it, it, it took muscle to pull it, and it, it was unsteady and wanted to turn over, but it beat carrying everything by hand, too. So, But these other ideas, uh, were any of them really seriously considered? There were a whole mess of ideas. The ideas started coming before there was an actual space program, really. You know, the talk of space that emerged after Sputnik excited of forward-thinking engineers all over the country. Nowhere was that more the case than at the U.S. Army's Detroit Arsenal, where there were a couple of immigrant engineers, uh, a guy named M.G. Greg Becker, who was a Pole, a World War II refugee, and um, Ferenc Pavlik, who was Hungarian and had recently been a refugee of the Hungarian uprising of 1956. Uh, these guys started on their own. They were employed by the Detroit Arsenal. They ran a lab that was devoted to studying how to improve uh, the traction and mobility of tanks, mostly tanks, but military vehicles. On their own, they rededicated some of their soil bins uh, to studying what they thought might be an analog for, for lunar soil and trying to come up with machines that might travel in this, this stuff. The similar things were happening in private companies all over the country. And, and eventually, Becker and Pavlix uh, accepted jobs at General Motors, which ran a defense research lab in Santa Barbara, California. And that became kind of the headquarters for GM space work. By, by 1960, 61, when NASA and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory were working on the Surveyor Program, which was a, a program to to drop unmanned landers onto the moon to scope out possible landing sites for manned missions, the manned missions to come. Um, when that program came to the fore, there was an explosion of, of ideas. Companies just started working on their own remote rover models without government contract. It seems that they were competing on who could come up with the nuttiest idea for coming up. You know, for, for a rover. <laughs> yeah. Most of them were kind of insect-like. They had segmented legs and they had kind of heads with cameras built into them and proboscis and um, you know, they had pinchers to pick stuff up with and none of them were very practical. And by this time, Becker and Pavlix had come to the conclusion after a lot of experimentation, uh, both at the Detroit Arsenal and at, in Santa Barbara, they had come, up with the con come to the conclusion that the only practical well, the most practical means of, of transport on the moon would be with the wheel, a pretty conventional vehicle in its, in its basic outline. But they were way ahead of the pack in that. Other right. companies were building strange track vehicles and, and, and whatnot far into the 60s. Now, the ones you mentioned were kind of uh, left-field ideas that came from individuals outside the, the usual corporate kind of skunk works. Um, there was a lunar leaper, which was a uh, a giant pogo stick, basically, 
uh, that would carry two astronauts and would leap hundreds of feet up into the air. And in the course of one of these giant leaps would cover hundreds of feet laterally as well. There was a, uh, you mentioned the lunar worm that was developed by, or wasn't developed, it was proposed by Philco. Their aeroneutronics division proposed that you could build a, a caterpillar-like device that would move along at five miles an hour and could cover anything. It could even swim over liquids if need be. Of course, there are none of those on the moon, but still. But it would weigh, but it would weigh a ton. That was the problem. It right. would yep. need its own Saturn V and then some. The wackiest of the bunch is one that got a lot of respect, and that's the Lunar Flyer, the LFU, the Lunar Flying Unit. This would be a small, uh, well, it'd be a variation on the jet packs that Sean Connery wore in Thunderball. Right, yeah. Um, rocket attached to the back of a uh, an astronaut or uh, or a uh, a pod in which he would stand that was rocket powered, kind of like the uh, the flying cars in Dick Tracy, or or a sit down kind of conventional flying platform in which you'd be in a recumbent chair and 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 fly around. These things would be carried in the lunar module, and and then once the the module had landed, the astronauts would unload these devices, these LFUs fuel them up with excess fuel from the lunar module and then take off to parts unknown. But yeah, that just strikes me as so insanely risky. Uh, just uh, so filled, so fraught with danger from beginning to end. Uh, just in the fueling of the thing, you know, considering the the fuels we're talking about here are ignite on contact, chemical reaction-based fuels. Um, it's astounding to me that it it remained a viable proposal within NASA right up until after Apollo 11 flew in 1969. But I guess eventually, I, I assume that you've seen the 2001 Space Odyssey, and sure. the the module that they used to travel actually fairly long distances. We're talking maybe hundreds of kilometers over the lunar surface. It's kind of like uh, I don't I don't remember exactly how it works, but they it's an enclosed structure. They get in. It operates, you know, it hops from place to place. Essentially, it has, it reaches like maybe a couple hundred feet of altitude, and then it just goes laterally across over the surface. Well, you'll, you'll also remember from 2001 that it did that hopping over a moon that was pretty well colonized. There was some infrastructure there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we were sending Pan Am planes to the moon. That's right. We had a Pan Am had, shuttle. That, that, that was a funny one. Yeah. Yeah. So, great. so it, you know, I mean, um, I don't think that the idea of hopping around the moon in a, in a rocket-propelled device is crazy. What's crazy is that it was considered for Apollo when we had the engine conked out on one of those lunar flying units, and uh, it was beyond the walk-back range for the, the astronaut aboard the thing. <laughs> you know, we, there would have been no no safety net. There was, you know, I mean, and these were vehicles that were not necessarily easy to control, and the astronaut would be expected to multitask while attempting to wrestle, wrestle it into submission. It, uh, it was just one bad idea layered on top of another behind it, it seems to me. And, and uh, I, I found myself going through some of the lunar flying unit documentation scared out of my wits. I mean, <laughs> I'd be half of the astronauts who might have been asked to actually do this. And thank right, they yeah, weren't. yeah. And so the lunar rover, as we as we know it today, was actually designed and built by GM, General Motors, and Boeing. Yeah, Boeing was the prime contractor, but GM really had been working on this thing for 
years. Most of the most of the design came from GM. Most of the design was in, incorporated into a little model that you know Frank Pavlix, the Hungarian refugee, built and and showed to Werner von Braun. So, do you think were, that the fact that GM was a car manufacturer? I mean, and this is a <laughs> this this is kind of a car buggy, whatever. Uh, did that give them an an edge over Boeing, which primarily designs aircraft and spacecraft? Well, you would think you would think so, except that Detroit had no piece of this. This was all out of Santa Barbara, and so you know the what what the land mobility uh, folks in Santa Barbara were were tasked with doing most of the time was developing military terrestrial vehicles for the for the U.S. Armed Forces, or you know that they could propose to the U.S. Armed Forces, and so they did a lot of. A lot of the work that they did on lunar mobility, they then turned around and incorporated into vehicle designs for the military, uh, especially where it came to uh, flexible frames, articulation between the front and back half of a car. Uh, they, they developed a, a lot of carryalls and um, all-terrain vehicles that, that could bend in the middle. You know, the folks who developed the Vega didn't have any piece of this, which you know, some would see as actually a pretty good thing. Anyway, let's jump to Apollo 15, which uh, you write landed in the Hadley-Apennine region with the now famous uh, Hadley Rill, a stunning gorge nearly a mile wide and a thousand feet deep. The, the landscape rose and fell like Saharan dunes. Thus, the, the lunar module could get could disappear behind some of those swells. And Jim Irwin one of the moonwalkers on that mission said, you really could get lost here. When they're out on this landscape where you have, you know, basically no atmosphere, you can't judge distance very well. You can't judge the shapes and sizes of the, of the uh, landscape very well. Isn't it inherently easy to get disoriented? What they had was a really simple navigation system that used the point of origin, the, the starting point as kind of the touchstone for an entire journey, the, you know, the milepost by which everything else in the journey was measured. So for instance, they, and it was almost always right next to the, the lunar module, it was wherever the, the rover was parked. Uh, they, they zero in basically that location. They knew that location. So they use that as the zero point. And then the navigation system would use a very simple directional gyro, which basically just kept track of where the nose was pointed. And the odometers, they married it to the odometer readings off the four wheels. And you put those two together, and, uh, and the navigation system was able to, to record and track how far it had, you know, the rover had gone in any one direction for how long, and thus could tell you know, the astronauts where they were, where they were headed, you know, and how far they had, had to go until they got to where they were going. Where the lunar module was in terms of heading, and most importantly, what the quickest straight line route back to the lunar module was if they needed, you know, needed to get back in a hurry. They never became disoriented, really. They had Houston's help. Houston was kind of looking over their shoulder, really. It had maps of, of the region in which they operated. It had the locations and distances to the sampling sites that they wanted the astronauts to go to. And they were keeping track of where the, the rover was at any given point. So they could always tell, um, you know, the operator, the driver of the rover, 
you want to head on this heading for 1.3 kilometers and you're going to be there and it worked amazingly well i mean it's really it was really efficient you know at times in fact it was so efficient that houston could correct the astronauts right and tell them no you're not there yet you know the, there would be times when the astronauts would say oh, well i think we're here and Houston would say, no, no, you're not. You've got to keep going another four-tenths of a kilometer. Right. But the other caveat to that, though, is if there were some interruption in the radio link between Houston and the and the astronauts, then they would be left to their own devices to find their way back, maybe if they if they were lost. But, but you know, that's, that's well, not to of, find their way back. Not to find their way back. To find their way to the next to the sampling next stop. site. Okay. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But but to find their way back, that information was right there on the console. That was always oh, okay. And, and okay. probably for the very reason you just mentioned. In, in case they were left on their own, they would always be able to have that right there. You know, and and ultimately, you you made reference to it. Ultimately, if if they suffered a failure of the electronics, they'd follow their tracks. They do the Hansel and Gretel routine and, and go back that way. Right, um, which is a good uh, good thing about. It. Uh, exploring the lunar surface on that mission they actually were able to collect a four billion year old volcanic rock dubbed the genesis rock by the media you write that it was considered one of the most significant uh, geological finds or significant scientific finds of the whole apollo program and uh I did a review of your book uh, for for my Forbes uh, as a Forbes post, and then I I tweeted it, and I had I had someone who challenged me on that, and because they said Gene Shoemaker, the American planetary scientist, actually said that nope, the most significant scientific uh, samples of the whole Apollo mission were Neil Armstrong's collection of the first Apollo Eleven lunar samples well i think that's silly <laughs> it's silly i mean for all, all that the the first lunar landing brought to the program into the world and and let's not discount a bit of it i mean those guys were the first and you know they deserve every accolade that one can lay at their feet um, but to suggest that their geological work was the most significant of the Apollo program is, is silly. It's just not true at all. You can argue as to whether the Genesis rock was, was, uh, you know, among the most important. The key word here is among. I'm not arguing that it was the no, most yeah. important boot rock brought well, back. Well, I think it probably uh, you know, is among. That, it, it is among them. I, I would. I, I think it is probably among the most important. But the other thing sure. is that this person also for uh, neglected to mention that. We're going to talk about Harrison Jack Schmidt. He was the only moonwalker to actually have been a, a geologist mm-hmm. before he became mm-hmm. an astronaut. And, and so that was, that's one reason Apollo 17 was so successful. They found the orange beads, you know, the orange volcanic rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, I know better than to say that anything was the most important sample brought back because, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that, that will change with time anyway. You know, who knows what we'll discover 50 years from now that will put these rocks in an entirely different context. Uh, exactly. At the time it was collected, that chunk of anorthosite, the, the Genesis rock, was viewed as, hey, mission accomplished. We found what we came for. And it's why Jerry Griffin, who was the, the lead flight director for Apollo 15, declared that day to be the, you know, the, the greatest day in the history of exploration, basically. 
it was remarkable that they found that thing. And Apollo 15 is, is the mission we're talking about. And, and uh, of course, what their discoveries would have been utterly impossible without that first rover. You know, one of the things to remember about the rover, too, is it affected the setting for, for these missions. Because what the rover enabled a crew to do was to set the lunar module down in the middle of an area that had a lot of different topography and to sample each. You know, you were not stuck just going to one location for one thing. You could go to one location and wind up looking for a half dozen different types of things. And you saw that with Apollo 15, where they land in a plane, ominously called the, the Marsh of De- Decay, uh, that was ringed by these mountains that were just enormous. Uh, you know, the size of Kilimanjaro from base to top. No foothills, just erupting out of the plane. You know, pressed on all sides by these mountains. Uh, and then on one side, a just this enormous rill, this canyon. And uh, they were able to, to drive the rover several hundred feet up the side of these uh, one of those mountains to collect samples. They were able to go to the edge of the rill in a couple of different locations. They went to the rims of craters. Um, you know, until 15, that was unthinkable. You know, that, that on Apollo 14, the last pedestrian Apollo mission, Alan Shepard and Ed Mitchell hiked trying to get to one crater and <laughs> couldn't find it. They got disoriented, right. as we were talking about before. And and it eluded them, even though it was a thousand feet wide and it was only a half mile away. They couldn't find it. You know, the the rover enabled the astronauts to to just take on really ambitious assignments within each landing area. So you have been fortunate enough to. Uh, I've only had the opportunity to interview one uh, moonwalker, Harrison Jack Schmidt, uh, about twenty years ago, and. and I was just fascinated by how he described, tried to describe the lunar landscape when you're out there. And I think you actually have interviewed two uh, moonwalkers, Charlie Duke and Alan Shepard. So did did you, in your interview... And Dave Scott by... Dave Scott in writing. We, we, and Dave we, Scott, you know, okay. So did you ask any of them, you know, about the pinch-me moments of being on the lunar surface? What it looks like, oh, what heck, it feels yeah. like, that kind of thing. What what did they say that we we might not know? Well, I think that that one of the things they all mention is that the uh, you know the smaller diameter of the moon lead, creates a very weirdly close horizon. It's you know it's right up on you. It feels like, um, and um, that combined with the utter blackness of the sky. Of course, they you know. Charlie Duke talked about seeing the Earth off in that blackness, but just the the sensory uh, warping that occurs when you have this this weirdly close horizon, utter blackness of sky without clouds or other markers of distance, it, without a without an atmosphere, things don't haze out with distance either. You know, we look at a mountain range in the distance here, and one of the ways we're able to gauge its distance is its lack of clarity created by the atmosphere well on the moon a mountain that's 10 miles away is every bit as clear and it's in super high resolution as if it were 50 yards away i mean it's there's no difference there's nothing to get in the way and that that also was weird and then of course the lack of any sort of regular yardsticks any any houses or telephone poles or trees or 
anything at all that we use to to gauge where we are and how far we are. And that's something that that uh, that Charlie Duke talked about quite a bit. And yeah, it, it, he also talked about how much fun he had because John Young and Charlie Duke, uh, for my money, if you listen to their transmissions and read the transcripts of their wanderings, uh, I think they had the uh, they had the most fun on the moon. That's certainly my impression. And they were, you know, a couple of couple of good old Southern boys in a lot of ways, and, and uh, that that comes through loud and clear. The final Apollo mission, Apollo 17, touched down in the spectacular Taurus Litro Valley in December 1972. From there, astronauts Eugene Cernan and Harrison Jack Schmidt reached the outer limit of their safe radius of travel, you note, when they were nearly five miles from their lunar module on December 12, 1972. Quote, by comparison, you write, Roald Amundsen's trek to the South Pole was a run to the to the corner grocery. <laughs> I'm sure there are going to be some angry Norwegian readers, but you know they, it's it's true. I mean, um, for I mean these guys flew a quarter million miles to the moon. They landed in the man of the moon's left eye at its edge. They climb out of their spaceship. They get into a 1969 General Motors product. They then drive it not only almost five miles but over some insane terrain that puts a lot of obstacle between them and their one way home. And then they get out of their, their car again and they, they do science. It's, um, you know, it's, it's just mind boggling. And really that, that of course that 4.72 miles away from the, from base was the farthest any of the Apollo crews ever got from their lander. And it really kind of marks the outer edge of the outer edge of our travels as a species, is the argument I make in the book. Put it this way. They were so far out there that if they jumped back in into the rover and it conked out for whatever reason, it was disabled and they couldn't use it, they would have had to boogie uh, to, to get back in time to the lunar module on foot. Uh, there was a 61-minute drive away Good from the lunar gosh. module. That's a, 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 and, that's shocking. And they had, a, they, had, they had a 250-foot ridge between them and that lunar module that they had to climb up and then climb back down the other side of. So this was, this was daunting. Now, had they suffered a failure of the rover and a failure of one of their backpacks, uh, we, would have seen, we would have seen an astronaut die. Mm. Um, that, so that's the kind of out there we're talking about. Uh, this is um, this is serious exploration. I don't think the astronauts sometimes get the credit they deserve uh, as explorers. You know, they, they these guys were, as far as I'm concerned, you know, they're up there with Captain Cook. Earl, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Well, they're welcome to go to my my website, earlswift.com, and uh, there's a contact page there that um, that they can, you know, get to me through. And I promise I'll, I'll I answer my mail. You can also, uh, of course, find uh, find lots on the book online, uh, in various sites at this point. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Earl Swift, thanks for helping us better understand how these moon buggies 
helped astronauts explore the lunar surface. Bruce, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.